Well, it's a mercy and grace to be here with you this morning, and certainly a highlight for the Chin family that we can be here with you this morning. While we return this morning to the God-breathed words of Matthew chapter 5, and we celebrate really a, a wonderful and great Savior, and that's really the focus this morning as we come to the second part of our series on, on heavenly righteousness, heavenly righteousness. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, as you come to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, as it closes out, it ends with the following God-breathed words. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. As one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now we live in a day and age where authority is a bad word. But from the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. From the doctrine and the gospel that he taught. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To the gospel life that he lived. Everyone who heard Jesus and everyone who saw Jesus, they recognized in him an unprecedented power, an unprecedented purity, and unprecedented authority. Not seen in anyone else. They'd never seen anything or anyone like Jesus. His power, his purity or his holiness, his authority. They did not see it in King Herod. They did not see it in Pontius Pilate. They did not see it in Caesar. And they did not see it in their religious leaders and religious experts, also known as the scribes. And in the words Jesus spoke, in the life he lived, people recognized a righteousness or a rightness with the one true God of the Bible. It was not a righteousness that we see in men. Being right with the God of the Bible. And this was especially true as they surveyed those who among them were to be or supposedly or were esteemed as the most righteous. Those who knew most of the Bible, those who had memorized, those who had studied, those who had been to the best seminaries, those who had been to the best churches, those who had served in the most religious positions. Jesus was in a different league and they recognized it. And it's one of the reasons crowds came. And for the religious and political leaders, this righteousness on display in Christ's life, it was both intimidating and threatening because they did not have it. In many ways, it took away their authority. But for the downtrodden and for the desperate, this righteousness was refreshing and uplifting. They saw in Jesus' righteousness something that was both necessary and beautiful. 
And this is why tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes gravitated towards Jesus. He had what they needed, but it was also different from the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and the religious people of the day. It was beautiful. It was visibly tied to the grace and love of God and not the grace and love of men. It was indeed good news. And it's worth stopping to think, how often do we think of righteousness as being good news? But for everyone, including the disciples, Christ's righteousness put forth a challenge or a question. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with his gospel? What do we do with his righteousness? How are we to understand this righteousness, which is different from all the religious righteousness we see? How are we to respond to it? And to Jesus' disciples, those who had obeyed Christ's command to repent and follow him, Jesus answers all of these questions. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with his gospel? What do we do with his righteousness? He answers all these questions with a simple answer. As children of God, as citizens of his kingdom, as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, they are to live his righteousness. All of it, not just some of it. And they're to live his righteousness in every aspect of their lives from inside out. Their hearts, their minds, their nightlife, their day life, their work, their relationships, their marriage. They're to live his righteousness in every aspect of their lives to the glory of their Father in heaven. Why? Because according to the Beatitudes, this is God's gift of love in Christ. This is what God has given them. He's given them a completely new life in Christ. Now that they are a part of Christ, they are part of his life, they are part of his righteousness, they've been given this gift of his righteousness rather than the righteousness of the world. And so Christ calls them, having been given this gift, they are to live it. They are to use it. They are to embrace it. They're to celebrate it. They're to rejoice in it. And this, brothers and sisters, is what's different about heavenly righteousness. Heavenly righteousness, unlike the righteousness of men, where we're comparing ourselves one to the other. Am I better than this person? Am I better than this person? Have I done A to Z? It's transformative, and it becomes a celebration of God's goodness and grace. God is good, and he has given us his goodness, a goodness I don't have. I need to celebrate this. I need to rejoice in this. I need to live this and use it to, a ma to the max. It would be as if someone came, you newlyweds who are thinking about life after you get married. It's as if someone came and they gave you, okay, not just a wedding gift. They gave you the house, the car the college tuition fee for your kids. They've given you everything, the whole thing. What are you going to do? You're just going to leave it there and say, no, no, thanks. We'll figure this out in our own. No, you're going to be grateful. You're going to celebrate. You're going to take it and you're going to use it all. And others around you are going to say, gee, what great parents, what great family, what great friends you have that they would give all of this to you. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, let your light shine. 
so that others may see your good works and give glory and praise to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, this this righteousness in the life of Christ's kingdom is a righteousness that is meant to be lived. And it's meant to be celebrated And it's meant to be rejoiced in because the standard of righteousness and the goodness and the rightness before God is a righteousness and a rightness that comes from heaven. And it is a righteousness that is right before God according to God's standards, not according to ours. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The first portion as Jesus walks through the Beatitudes, he shows you why this life is blessed. And he shows you all the hallmarks of God's grace that he's poured into your life. And then in the second portion, as we walk through, this is a pivot point right now when he talks about the righteousness exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a pivot point where he, he's pointing out to his disciples, I want you to understand what God has given you. And then he's going to go on in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and show them how to live it in detail in their relationships with their spouses, in interaction with children, in their workplace, in their conflicts, every aspect of their lives, this gift of God is to be lived and to be lived by faith. And how exactly does this happen? Well, Jesus shows us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll look at verse 13 through 20. I know it says 6 through 20. But you'll pardon me if I shorten it and move it up a little bit. And with these words, as Jesus is walking them through, he's showing them how are we to live this life that he has given to his his disciples. Matthew 5.13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. Around 138-139 AD, a professing Christian of considerable wealth and influence moved to Rome, and he joined the local church there. And he had been raised in a Christian home. He had been raised in a Christian church. And he was the son of a bishop in Pontus, 
Asia Minor, Turkey area. And not only had he grown up in a Christian home, and not only was his dad a pastor, more than a pastor, a bishop, he also had become successful in the world of shipping. And at that time in the Roman Empire, shipping was a big deal. Your Amazon Prime, it's what got everything from one end of the empire to the other. And on his arrival in Rome, he started out his relationship with the church there by making a generous donation and an offering to that local church in Rome. He gave them 200,000 sesterci, which is probably the equivalent, depending on how you calculate it, anywhere from 300,000 to around 600 or 800,000 American U.S. dollars. So just think of that. Someone comes into the church. My dad's a pastor. I was born in a Christian home. Pastor Mark, here's $500,000 for whatever ministry you'd like to do. Let's have a meal. And not surprisingly, he became an influential member in the church in Rome. And not surprisingly, then he became a teacher. Someone who people listened to and gained a following. And as he taught, he started to make the point. He says, look, we have forgotten the gospel. In fact, the church has obscured the gospel. It's buried under all this tradition. This is 138 AD. Okay? Does this sound familiar? We've got to consider the writings of the Apostle Paul. We've got to focus on the true gospel. And then he provided the church with a great service. At that time, all the sacred writings were kept separately. So you, some churches had the epistles of Paul. They had the epistles of he, the, to the Hebrews. Each of these were kept separately. It was parchment. Sometimes they were on scrolls. It was very expensive. So they're all kept in, in separate documents. Well, he compiled them together and put together one of the first quote-unquote canons. One of the first Bibles where it was all collected, all the sacred writings were collected in one place where you could go through. What a great service to the church. So far, so good, except in his collection, he removed the entire Old Testament. We don't need the Jewish writings. He also decided, hey, I like Paul, but 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, not so crazy about those. We'll leave those out. And then he took the Gospel of Luke and he edited it and it got renamed after him. He had his own Gospel. The Gospel of Marcion. Or in Greek, Markian. Similar to my name. A little version of Mark. And then in time, he began preaching that Jesus Christ was an entirely new God, the God of love, distinct from that mean old vengeful God of the Old Testament and the Jews. Does this sound familiar? I remember someone who'd been to a Christian college sharing with me that she did not like the God of the Old Testament, but she was okay with Jesus. She was juiced in with Marcion. Not surprisingly, he became very influential, had a huge following, set up a network of churches, and then in 144 AD, he was church disciplined out of the church for heresy. But his church and the series of churches, which he added all these other crazy ideas that the men and women couldn't get married in the church and all these other weird rules, it continued into the 5th century. 
Now I know you hear this first century stuff and it sounds crazy, right? Except the same thing happens today. People come in, grew up in the Christian home, have a following, they know the Bible, they give large donations, they serve big in the church. And as you walk through church history, you see the same pattern over and over again of influential people, influential by the world standards and influential by the standards of righteousness of the church, picking and choosing the parts of Scripture that they like. I like this portion, I don't like this portion. And then surprise, surprise, they end up with a false Jesus, they end up with a false gospel, and they end up with a false following. Thomas Jefferson, he would read the Bible every night before he went to bed. Wow, fantastic. Man, if I could get you all to read the Bible before you went to bed at night, would we be there? Way ahead of the game, right? Except the Bible that he read every night, and this is his personal Bible, he had taken a razor blade and cut out significant portions, including all the supernatural portions and the miracles, because the Jesus he worshipped was a Jesus who was a good teacher. And we see the same pattern with the KKK, and we see the same pattern with Gandhi, and we see the same pattern with Martin Luther King, and we see the same pattern with the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons, and we go on and on, and quite frankly, a lot of American Christianity and those folks who are up at the Capitol building wearing a cross when the Capitol building is getting invaded. The same pattern of we pick and choose the portions of Scripture we like, and we leave the rest. Brothers and sisters, how often do we do that? How often do we pick those favorite memory verses or those portions, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and I put it on my basketball shoes. We, how often do we pick the ones that we like and we forget the rest? And when we do this, brothers and sisters, whose terms and whose standard of righteousness are we living by? And when we do this, brothers and sisters, who's really playing God? When Jesus says to his disciples in verse 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's showing them that by God's grace, they are now different. They are now a part of his life. They are now a part of his work. They are now a part of his kingdom. They are now a part of his righteousness and his standard of what is right and wrong. And when he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? To you? No, to your father who is in heaven. He's showing them, hey, because of me, God is your father. And Jesus makes it very clear because they are now a part of his life. What a gift. They are to live and they are to think his way, not the way they think is best. And praise God, this is the good news, brothers and sisters. When Christ comes into our lives as king, he saves us from a life of thinking what and living what we think is best. Because you're not that smart and neither am I. You didn't create the world. You don't know the end from the beginning. And we can't keep our promises. But God created the world. 
He knows the end from the beginning. He is holy and good. He always keeps his word. And praise God, we're delivered when we come into his standard of righteousness. And we're able to live not by what we think is best or right. But by what God says is indeed and in truth right. And Jesus, with these words, he begins to challenge the way the disciples think. And he's pointing out that the way the scribes and Pharisees think, and the way most religious people think, they have it wrong. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Heavenly righteousness requires heavenly, not worldly thinking. Heavenly righteousness requires heavenly, not worldly thinking. In verse 17, Jesus, as king, he follows up his command about how the disciples are to live this new life, how they're to shine. He follows it up with a second non-negotiable command. And it begins with the God-breathed words, do not think. Do not think. And what Jesus does here is he connects right living that glorifies God with right thinking. Connects right living that glorifies God with right thinking that glorifies God. According to God's word, our lives are led by our thoughts. Our thoughts that arise from our hearts and our minds. Our hearts and our minds. In the Old Testament heart, New Testament Greek minds. But there's a big overlap. They're the mission control center of your life. The seat of your emotions. The seat of your affections. The seat of your desires. And this is the source of our thought life. Where our thought life, what we think about. And Jesus is pointing out here. Our lives are led by the thoughts that arise from our hearts and our minds. Heavenly thoughts lead to heavenly lives. Righteous thoughts lead to righteous lives. When was the last time that you saw a righteous life that was filled with unrighteous thoughts? Brothers and sisters, unrighteous thoughts lead to unrighteous lives. And this is why Proverbs 4.23 commands, guard, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Your life, every aspect that comes out of it, it's going to come from that heart as if it's a well. And if you poison that well and you fill that well with refuse refuse and garbage, what's going to happen? All the water, everything that comes out the rest of your life is going to be contaminated. And Jesus makes the same point. It's not what goes into a man that defiles as far as food. It's what comes out of the heart. And the Apostle Paul says the same thing in in Philippians chapter 4. We went over it this past week, probably for the second time. Kevin preached on it before, right? That when, when we pray, what is it that guards and keeps our hearts and minds? The peace which passes all understanding that comes from godly prayer, submitting our hearts and our thoughts to the will and word of God. And then he goes on and makes that point that we're to think about what is true, what is good. Now if this sounds too holy to you, just go and 
look at the news and look at the media and look at all the experts who are coming out and advising parents to monitor their children's social media. And just look at all the tech giants and all the executives and look at the way in which they monitor the social media of their children. Why do they do that? They're concerned about how their children's thoughts are affected. And brothers and sisters, the good news of God's word is when Christ commands his disciples in verse 17 and says, do not think. He shows them he's not just Lord of their lives or what they do. He is Lord of their hearts and minds and what they think. How often, brothers and sisters, do we think that our thoughts, what we think about, is accountable to someone else? Well, those are my thoughts. That's my private thing. It's not sin as long as I don't act on it. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. It's just a struggle I have. As long as I don't act on that. It's not wrong to be tempted, is it? No, but when you start to turn things over and over in your mind, you start to delight in that. You start to toss it around like it's a throat lozenge, right? And you meditate on it. That's your thing. And you go back to it repeatedly over and over again. Brothers and sisters, do you think that your thoughts about what you think about your spouse what you think about your children, what you think about your friends, what you think about other church members, it's accountable to others even if they don't hear it or see it. But guess what? The Lord does. And the sweet thing about being a Christian is when we become saved and we come into the kingdom, Christ comes and he transforms the way we think by bringing his righteousness and his rule, by showing us how to think, by setting his standard, by setting his law down and saying, look, do not think. And with Christ, he leaves no room for unrighteous thoughts. No room, no place. Do not think. Brothers and sisters, how sweet our lives would be, how encouraging and how uplifting if every time an unrighteous thought, an unkind thought, a bitter thought, an ugly thought, a prideful thought, the moment that it entered, we heeded Christ's command and say this place and this thought, unkind, ugly, demeaning, prideful, has no place in my life because I belong to Christ. A discipline of the mind that's obedient to the Lord. This is the way Christ protects his children. How does he shepherd and protect his disciples' lives? He does so with his word and with his command. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. His word and command that prohibits thinking that is unrighteous, untrue, and quite frankly, worldly. Anything that's not of God. And it begins with how his disciples think about him. As we consider Christ's words, brothers and sisters, entertaining unrighteous thoughts is contrary to God's desire for you. It's contrary to God's command to you. And if it's contrary to God's command, you are disobeying and I am disobeying Christ. It is sin. 
Pastor Mark, so hard, so legalistic, right? And yet parents, if you had a child who came to you and said, I'm cutting myself because I'm not worthy and good enough and I need to punish myself, what would you say? Oh yeah, go on, think about that for a little bit more. Follow that TikTok channel and keep on looking at those videos about how to cut yourself, right? No. Christ loves us by showing us what is destructive to the very center of who we are. And in place of unrighteousness, he gives us righteous thoughts. It's called his word. It's called his love for us. It's called his law. And it's a beautiful thing. And we have to think too, how does Satan destroy our love for God and our love for one another? Genesis 3. He brings in lies And he brings in unrighteous thoughts. And he brings in lies and unrighteous thoughts very specifically about who God is. And he calls upon us to live by the thoughts of our experience and our expectations rather than God's word. Infidelity begins with unrighteous thoughts about other people in our lives. Let me give you a recipe. Those who are about to get married. Those who are married. Do you want to be unfaithful to your spouse? Start thinking ill of them. Start entertaining every bitter and ugly thought about them. Start thinking the worst of them. Start focusing in on all the ways they've hurt you or all the ways they've fallen short. I can guarantee you, you ride that wave, you will be unfaithful to your spouse. And that's the roadmap of how Satan works in our lives. You've had a bad experience. A church situation didn't work out. Focus on that. Don't focus on who God is. Don't focus on what he's done. Don't focus on the truth of his word. Assume that you know what's best and just focus in on that hurt and go for it and live by it. In verse 17, Jesus requires heavenly thoughts first and foremost about who he is and what he has come to do. And why does he do that? Because he loves his disciples, and he wants their hearts and minds filled with what is right and true and good, according to God's word, and according to heaven. Verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we've already noted the way in which the world picks and chooses what's best for them and sort of breaks down God's word. And this idea of abolish means to destroy or or to make null and void. And when Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, he says, "Don't, don't even think I've come to abolish part of it. The pattern of the world, and we've already mentioned this, And the pattern of worldly thinking is to take a portion of God's word and make it null and void. And what we do is, when we make God's word less and smaller, we make God smaller, we make ourselves bigger. It's a way of thinking, and it happens frequently when we focus on our Christian liberties. 
Why can't I drink alcohol? It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that I can't drink alcohol. Why can't I do A, B, C, D, and E? It doesn't say in the Bible anywhere don't, don't use cocaine. Why can't I do it? And when we have that approach of, okay, I just want to look at what I can do. We're approaching God's word in a way that subverts God's love and his lordship over the entirety of our lives. And what it does is, it entertains a really twisted thought about who God is. Because God has come into our lives to set us free from the destructiveness of our sin in this world in order to bring us into the beauty and the goodness and the grace of his righteousness. What is right for us. Like every good parent, you want what is right for your child. When Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he then replaces that lie with the truth. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All of it. Every aspect of God's word. And with this, he points the disciples to the truth of who he is. This is the truth he wants for them. That you would know who I truly am. Who is Jesus according to God's word? He is the one who in love has come to do what no man can or will do. He has come to fulfill. He has come to honor. He has come to obey. He has come to bring to completion. Not some of God's word, but all of God's word. Regardless of the personal cost to himself. Brothers and sisters, this is heavenly righteousness. Heavenly righteousness honors, obeys, and brings to completion not some, but all of God's word. Because all of God's word, not some of it, is true and is right. And brothers and sisters, this is what brings Christ to the cross. To die for sinners like you and I. So that all of God's righteousness is fulfilled. And it's the beauty of Christ when he comes into our lives. He doesn't give part of himself to you and I. He doesn't give part of God's righteousness to you and I. He's not a weekend dad. Hey, I'll hang out with you on the weekends, but I'm gone five days of the week. He gives you all of God's righteousness. And this, brothers and sisters, is what sets Jesus apart as king, as Lord, and God. It's the good news that saves. That Jesus' righteousness is not this righteousness of the world or the scribes and Pharisees. Okay, and that, that continuum of good, better, best. Right? If I know more scripture than you, if I do more scripture than you, I might not have done it all, but I do more than you. I'm better than you. And you should be like me. And your kids should be like my kids because they know more Bible than your kids and it goes on and on and on, right? What a hell. That's not how Christ works. His righteousness isn't this, this scale or this bell curve. His righteousness is the whole righteousness, righteousness of God. 
And this is the gift that he's given to his disciples. And therefore, he comes to them and says, listen, I don't want you to think this way. Fast and loose, your righteousness versus my righteousness. No, you have to understand, if you're going to be righteous, you need to think with heavenly righteousness. And you need to see me with heavenly righteousness. You need to understand, I'm the one who fulfills the entirety of God's word. Anything less than this, brothers and sisters, is an unrighteous lie that destroys our salvation. It destroys the gift of His grace. It destroys the life that He has come to give. Will and Sarah, you just got married. Will, when Sarah moved in, did you tell her just bring half her stuff in? When her parents came, did you just say, okay, your dad can come in, but your mom, she can stay in a hotel? No, sir. But with joy and delight. Okay? When Christ becomes our king, his desire, because we need him and he is beautiful, is that we would embrace all of him. And to embrace all of him means embracing all of God's word. And this, brothers and sisters, brings us to our second point this morning. Heavenly righteousness requires a heavenly understanding and a heavenly use of God's word. Heavenly righteousness requires a heavenly understanding and a heavenly use of God's word. And I think you get this, right? We live in a day and age where plenty of people quote scripture, plenty of people pastor churches, plenty of people write books, and plenty of people teach in seminaries. And plenty of people couldn't be further from the kingdom of heaven. Do we understand God's word and do we use it in the way God intended it? Well, Jesus points out in verse 17, after he has stated, he has come not to abolish, but to fulfill, to honor, obey, and bring to completion all of God's word. He then explains in verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is showing them a right understanding of who he is and what he's come to do is tied to a right understanding of God's word. We can't understand or appreciate the fullness of what Jesus did for us on the cross, how he's loved us, the life he's given us, who he is, if we just take portions of scripture. We've known people who have come and said, there are errors in the Bible, but I believe the message. And as long as I believe the message and I believe the gospel, I'm a Christian just like you. I worship the same God just like you. But when Jesus comes and he says, truly I say to you, amen. A saying that he uses 30 times in Matthew. Jesus is asserting, he is the authoritative truth of God's word. He's not speaking to them as a rabbi or a scholar. He's speaking to them as God. Amen. Truly I say to you. 
And he says, I say to you, brothers and sisters, when we come to God's word, how often do we consider and what would it do for our devotional time if when we came to God's word, we believed all of it and we believed that God was speaking directly to us. And when Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, he's reminding his disciples that God's word, what God has spoken, is more authoritative and more permanent than anything in this world. And that includes you and I. And when he says not an iota or not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished, he's making reference to the smallest stroke of the pen. The equivalent of dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Jesus is saying there's no mistakes here. The Bible is authoritative. It is inerrant without error down to the tiniest stroke of the pen in the original autographs. It is infallible. It is perfect. It is God-breathed. And if this is true of the Torah, the first five books of Moses, beginning of Scripture, it's going to be true for the entirety of God's Word. And Jesus goes on to speak of His Word in the Gospels in exactly the same way. And it's with these words, Jesus shows us God's intent for His Word. Beginning with the law. God did not give us his word to be a reference work, to be an encyclopedia, to be a book that we look to to figure out how we fix our lives. He didn't give it to us to have a book of a list of do's and don'ts so I can know the secret handshake and be influential in the church. He didn't do it or give it to us so that I could get a seminary degree or teach somewhere. He didn't give this book to us to be a myth or an illustration or an academic exercise. All the ways the world uses God's word. He gave us his holy and eternal and inerrant word to accomplish his will. God's word is here to accomplish God's purposes. To do what God wants. And so Isaiah in Isaiah 55.11 says, speaking God's word, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me void or empty without accomplishing what? Better life for you? Better friend for you? No. Without accomplishing what I desire. God has given us his word from Genesis to Revelation to accomplish his will, to accomplish his purposes. And brothers and sisters, that's where we get confused. That's where we get discouraged. There are portions that we do not understand based on our experience. It doesn't line up. We can't understand why is evil happening in the world today? Why does God allow Russia to invade the Ukraine? Why does he allow earthquakes to happen? It doesn't fit our standard of righteousness. But God points out here, and Jesus makes the point, look, we are looking and understanding God's word incorrectly. God's word is not here to make your life more comfortable or to make the world better in the way that you think it should be better. I have a plan, it is good, and my word has been given to fulfill my plan. 
And that's what separates children of God from the children of the world. As Jesus said, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. I have come to do the will of my Father. What is God's purpose and desire? That the law and the five books of Moses and the old covenant point to. They weren't given, brothers and sisters, as a do-it-yourself guide to save yourself. That is false religion. That is self-righteousness. The law was given to reveal God's holy character and His standard of righteousness. It's to show us who God is. And to show us what He requires. When you go through those Ten Commandments, the first section shows us how we're to love God. And the second section, how we're to love one another. But it's entirely a reflection of how God loves us. Those Ten Commandments are an expression of God's holy love. The law was given to reveal our true nature. The law shows us how we fall short of the glory of God. Our best day, our best effort, we can't match God's holiness. We can't fulfill it. The law was given to teach us our need for God's salvation and His righteousness. The law was given to teach us the character and goodness of God's salvation. The law was given to point us to Christ and His righteousness. That's why God gave the law. It is to accomplish His righteousness. It is to show us who He is. The full purpose of God's Word is to bring us to repentance and faith in Christ. And this is why the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15 when Timothy is beaten down by worldly thinking he says the sacred writings and he's referring probably mostly to the Old Testament are able to make you wise for salvation. He's reminding him you hear all this chatter Timothy remember God's word. What was it that was able to make you wise and put before you choices that lead you to Christ? And then in 1 Timothy 1.8, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And he's talking about all the people who use the law for inappropriate, endless discussions, authority to become a teacher, to become an expert. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. How? And he walks through in the way the law convicts sinners of their sin. That they fall short of God's glory and they need his salvation. They need repentance and faith in Christ. They need Christ's righteousness. And he ends in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Brothers and sisters, God gave us his word to bring us to Jesus. To show us his character, His goodness, His love for us, to show us that we fall short of His glory, and to show us that we need a substitute and a sacrifice to pay for our sins, and we need a new life that's not like the old life. God gave us His Word to show us we need His righteousness and not our righteousness. And this is the beauty of God's will. His desire is that all men would be saved. Saved for what? 
Some of God's word? No. Every aspect of his word. And this is why Jesus then says, therefore, whoever relaxes, whoever loosens, whoever de-emphasizes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is pointing out, this is all about me. This is all to point you to me. This is all to show you how much I love you. Similar illustration, Valentine's Day. Get your wife flowers and a card. How do you feel when she takes the flowers and says, the the card I'll read sometime later? Jesus is saying, look, it all matters from the least to the greatest portion of it because it is all showing you how I love you. And when we, brothers and sisters, de-emphasize, when we relax... Jesus is pointing out here, I don't lower God's standard. I meet God's standard for you. And when you start to pick apart and lower pieces and de-emphasize and say, okay, we're free to do this, it's all about this. When we mishandle God's word, when we don't use it as God intended, when we come and it's a rule book to make me feel better about myself, just tell me what I need to do. And we fail to see God is showing us his character, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his sacrifice for you and I. We really trample, brothers and sisters, on the love of God and everything Christ came to do. Brothers and sisters, if we really believe all of God's word is authoritative, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, necessary, all those other things that we say, in order to accomplish God's will in our lives, we won't just study it. We'll live all of it the way God intended us to. And we'll teach it to others in the way God intended it to be taught. And how is that? Very simply, all of it will be lived for the glory of God. All of it will be lived out of love for God. All of it will be lived in a way that brings our hearts and the hearts of others to Christ as our only Savior and our only Lord. He's all that matters, that vital relationship with Him. That's what it's all about. And when we discard that, brothers and sisters, we're misunderstanding and we're mishandling God's Word because that's what He gave all of it for. God brought us to this place with His Word. And He gave us His Word to show us the gift of his righteousness in place of our own. And this brings us to our final point this morning. Heavenly righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Heavenly righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Brothers and sisters, worldly righteousness is just ugly and destructive. There's respectable And there's not respectable, but it is just ugly and dark because what it does is it chips away at who God is and it chips away at who you are too. That you're beloved of the Lord, that you're a child of God, that you're someone who Christ has come and fulfilled all of God's word 
so that you can be right with God. Heavenly righteousness is like Jesus. It's like sunlight. It is both necessary and beautiful. And as we consider the ways in which Christ fulfills the law, there is one more way. We talked about all the ways that he fulfills the law through his death and resurrection, through obeying the law. He fulfills it through the teaching that he gives. Every aspect of Christ's life he has come and he has shown us through all of those, the ways in which he fulfills the law through coming as a child, through fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, through obeying it, through dying on the cross, through rising. But there's one more way. Christ fulfills all of God's word in you and I. As you and I become part of Christ, as we walk with him, he fulfills God's promise in the new covenant. That he will give us a new heart and a new life. And that he will forgive us. And we will all know God. He fulfills God's desire and his will. And the reason God gave his word. That his people would not just be saved. But that they would be one and united. And they would be with him. And they would be like him. That they would share his righteousness. That is the way Christ fulfills all of God's word and righteousness in your life and mine as our lives become conformed. And how does that happen, brothers and sisters? It happens as we think and live in a way that submits to Christ's lordship and rule over our lives. How does it fall apart? When we resist the rule and authority of Christ in our lives. And when Christ departs, he says to his disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm going to give you a comforter. I'm going to give you a paraclete. I'm going to give you someone who's going to walk alongside you. It's the Spirit. And he's going to point you to my word. He's going to bring to memory my word. And he shows that what it is after he goes, his presence in our life is through his Holy Spirit and his word. And as we walk with the Spirit and as we walk with the word and as we submit to the Spirit and we submit to the word, we are in fact being molded by Christ in our thoughts, our hearts, our deeds into the righteousness of Christ. But as we resist and we reject and we do it our own way, When I grew up as a child, my parents were gracious. They took us on vacations. They sent us to school. They took us on trips. And the sweet thing about going on vacation with my parents is I never had to bring any money along. I still did. And the money I brought along was the allowance that they had given me. And the sweet thing about going with my parents on vacation is I didn't lack for anything. We could go to Disneyland. No problem. I didn't have to pay an entrance fee. I could go on whatever ride I wanted. I could eat ice cream. Anything that was required. Why? Because I was with them. And they were paying my way. Because they loved me. And as long as I was with them, things were good. When I grew up and got a real job and lived on my own and had to pay for a mortgage, things were really different. Because I had to do it myself. And the beauty, brothers and sisters, of heavenly righteousness, it really comes down to this. Are you walking with the Lord in your thoughts, in your heart, 
in your words and deeds. It really comes down to, are you with Christ? And as long as you're with Christ, you get that opportunity to share in his heavenly righteousness. And you will grow in that righteousness in your words, thoughts, and deeds. Except when you decide, I'm all grown up. I can pay my own way. I know enough now. I'm going to get my own job. I'm going to get my own life. I'm going to do it my own way. And I'll visit my parents every Sunday for Sunday dinner. Right? Which is what we do. Julie and I have had the privilege and pleasure of knowing some older saints who loved the Lord and were married for many years. And the beauty of spending time with them is you get to see not only do they know what one another is thinking, you can know what someone else thinks if you live with them long enough. This is what gets them upset. This is what they like. The remarkable thing is to see them think one another's thoughts. Why is that? Because they've lived a life of submitting to one another, not just living together. And they've lived a life submitting to one another because they've submitted to Christ as their king. And because they submitted to Christ as their king, they in love, they're able to submit to one another. And as they submit to one another, it is not a burdensome yoke. Yes, they had to die. They had to give things up. They had to make sacrifices. They had to say, this can no longer be part of my life because it conflicts with where my wife or where my husband is at. But in the end, they received so much more because they had unity with the Lord and they had unity with one another. They had that oneship that was there. They shared a life that God intended for them. Brothers and sisters, that's the life that God intends for his children. United with him and with one another. Living his righteousness and not the righteousness of the world. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus Thank you for what you've done for us. You came to give us a righteousness from above. Lord, help us to embrace it, to think it, to live it to the fullest. May we leave no room in our lives for what is untrue or unrighteous. But instead, Lord, would we walk and hold your hand and be with you every step of the way until you come again. In your name we pray, amen.